Good morning. Good to go? Yeah, sounds great. Wasn't able to sound check, but we are good to go. Uh, many of you know me. My name is Dirk Weiss. I'm from uh, Cedar Falls campus and been able to be here with you for a few months now on some Sundays. And so it's my joy to be with you this morning and in this passage. So uh, let me pray and we can jump in. Lord, we thank you for your word, and within just a few verses, we see a lot, and what's most important for us as, as your children, we can get caught up in a lot of things taking priority um, over what's most important, what's over love, even over you. So, Lord, open our eyes, give us focus, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe the truths that are within this passage. Would you call us out of where we are right now as individuals, as a church, as a community, in this season, in this period of history, nationally and globally, call us forward into something better that we would taste further and see that you are even better than we thought. You are good. And we trust, Lord, that we will look upon your goodness in the land of the living today. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I am a father of two. I have a three-year-old girl and a one-year-old boy. And for those of you parents out there, it's, maybe you're in this current season, but we are figuring out and trying to learn how to communicate consequences to our children, specifically our three-year-old. Um, you know, if you do this, then this will happen. Like, really simple logic. If you do this, then this will be a better reward. Now, because we're thinking beyond getting her to eat some food, beyond sharing with her brother, not hitting her brother. It's shaping her into who she will one day become as a woman. How she will relate to people. How she will be within community. How she will be God willing that she walks with him. And looks for and searches for a, a legit husband. These little conversations right now are really important for that. And you know what? I get really frustrated sometimes because we're dealing with mealtime, and it's either terrible or okay. It's never great, you know? And, and I have to continue to look ahead, to look ahead at, at what's really at stake here, how this will really impact her. And so for us, this morning, these last couple of weeks, we've been going through this IF series. So the purpose is for us as a church to have a high view of God's sovereignty and also our action in obedience to his call. Not maximizing one or the other, but seeing equal parts here. When we look in scripture, equal parts, God's sovereignty and our action in obedience to his call. And so this week's if, there's a lot of ifs in this passage, but to sum it up, if we have all the gifts 
yet we don't have love, we gain nothing. If we do the things of ministry, do the things that the church is supposed to do, yet do not have love, we accomplish nothing. We actually do more harm than good. And so our text this morning is Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth in ancient Greece. And so if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that Corinth is a pretty messed up church. Like out of all the churches that we hear of, know of in the New Testament period, Corinth has their issues. Now just a quick overview, leading up to where we are in a little bit around there, that there are divisions in the church over which leaders to follow, sexual immorality, lawsuits against one another, marriage and singleness issues, eating food sacrificed to idols and demons, head coverings, abusing communion, abusing the spiritual gifts, and people questioning the resurrection. Messy church. Now, Paul gets word of this. I think they write to him, talking about, hey, here's, here's what we're dealing with, and he responds to them. But I want to ask you, how would you respond? If, if you're the recipient of this letter, of this church that you helped plant, uh, of leaders that you helped raise up, people you discipled, maybe evangelized to and baptized, and you get this letter, all this stuff, I know how I would respond. Right, just, just stop meeting until I can get there. We're going to redo the whole thing. Take a few Sundays off. Just don't meet. You got your issues cut out for you. Because you guys cannot seem to figure it out. But what does Paul do? He brings correction by reminding them of who they are and what is of most importance? Reminding them of who they are and what is of most importance for them individually, as children of God, and for the church. He writes to inform them how they and we, it's not just they, it's us as well, how we ought to live as the church as we're on mission, as we serve, as we use our gifts, and reminded of the core of our faith. So what is that? What is that driving force? And the driving force of the church, both in Corinth, throughout all of history, and to today, is that of love. So Craig read through this. I don't have to read it exactly, but to sum it up here, what Paul's saying, you could have any gift, strength, or ability. Now he goes through a sample list. This isn't comprehensive, but a pretty hefty list. If you could speak in, in tongues of men or of angels, like you could speak in the language that angels speak to one another. You didn't have to take a class. If you have the gift of prophecy to hear and know what God is doing in the world and in people's lives, if you were able to know the mysteries of God. You think about how many questions you've had over the course of your life, questions that you have for God, like, God, I don't know why this happened. I don't get how, how this passage interacts with this one. Like, all of these things, 
if you were to know those mysteries, if you were to have faith to speak a word and move a physical mountain, to be cast into the sea, that would make headlines. If you were to give away everything, everything, if you were even to give up your own life to be sacrificed like Christ, and if it was without love, it's nothing. That's a statement. That's a statement. Because these are huge gifts to have. Like, wouldn't we want at least one of those? Wouldn't that be nice? But he's saying, without love, you are a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. Like, take the shield down, and in every act of you speaking truth, of you serving, you're having people over at your home, and as soon as they walk in, you're just clanging the cymbal over and over. And Paul's saying, this is what it's like to not love. It's shrill, it's damaging, it's disruptive, it's piercing. And here's the thing, without love, we take on replacement characteristics, right? We don't just have this neutral between good and evil. It's either good or it's not, right? It's either Jesus or something else. What is it, though? Well, Paul talks about these replacement characteristics. If you look at verses 4 through 6, Because he's saying this is what love is, but also conversely what it's not. We take on characteristics like impatience. We can be demeaning. We can envy. We can boast. We can be arrogant. We can be rude. We can insist on our own way. We can be irritable, resentful, and rejoice at failure and wrongdoing. This has been happening in Corinth. That's why he's writing to them, reminding them. And it happens to us as well. Right? So when Paul lists that up, has he described what your life has been like in the last two years? Has he revealed some things? Possibly. Now, this doesn't mean that you're just always resentful, right? Or, or fill in the blank, some, some other characteristic, but perhaps it's been a low simmer. Perhaps it's just been underlying everything that you do. It comes up at different moments. Different triggers bring it out. But it's there. It's a constant. It influences your thoughts. It influences your motives. It influences your actions. And what Paul's saying in verse 7, it does not cause you to endure. It won't endure. Because he's saying even the great supernatural gifts that the church of Corinth has elevated to an unhealthy level, he's saying those things will cease one day. They will cease. There's not going to be prophecy. One day there's not going to be tongues. One day there's not going to be knowledge. When? Verse 9. Or sorry, verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The perfect. Who's the perfect? The only perfect one. 
Jesus. When Jesus returns, those partial things are going to be gone. You won't need the gift of prophecy because you will be face to face with Jesus. You won't need to know, uh, to fight to know all the mysteries of God because the mysteries will be revealed. We will all know that. But one thing still remains in that, right? Paul says, what will remain is love. Why? As John says in 1 John, God is love. He is the embodiment of love. There's no detaching love from the Lord. He is love in everything he does. He is the source. He is the bottomless well of love. And that's what will remain. And therefore, Corinth, therefore, Redeemer, do not Forget that. Let that be your foundation. Let that be your driving force. And we see it in the clearest picture in the gospel. The good news is the good news of God's love being revealed to all of the world, to all of history. That the king of kings, the source, the embodiment of love, takes on flesh and enters creation to redeem his people. He demonstrates the way of love that sets people free from their sin, from their brokenness, from evil, and ultimately accomplishing that through his death on the cross, on full display, and through his resurrection. Right? So we have Good Friday coming up in a couple weeks, and I'll be down here for that. I'm looking forward to that. But what we see in Good Friday is his humility. Right? The, the king of kings taking on flesh and dying in such a brutal way. Showing us how much he loves us. How far he would go to show us how deeply he loves us all individually. In all of our mess. That's how far he would go. And in his resurrection. Right, that's the confirmation of his character. You want to see a blend of love and power, mercy and justice through the cross into the resurrection, backing up every single claim. He endures. He will not see destruction, right? And we will endure with him if we believe, if we call upon him. And so for us, church, our mission is to imitate him to abide in his love, to live out our new identities in Christ as his people, as the church. And so to know that as his church, we have been given his spirit, right? So he's not walking among us, but he's given us his spirit to dwell within us, to dwell in his truth, to live as he lived, led by the spirit, led by the father's voice in our discipleship in our community, in our counseling, in our leadership, in our generosity, in all of those things that we do as a church, it is all informed and lived out by the Spirit through us, the source of God's love. So what does the church do? 
in light of this. What, what does Redeemer do with this passage? Right, and so what does that love look like in action? And so it could be a lot of things, but I'm going to give us two things to really focus on, to write down, to meditate on, to, to, for this to be what we dive into individually and as a church going forward. The first being speaking the truth in love. So we're going to be in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. We'll have that pulled up for you. So this is Paul talking about the structure of the church. What has God given the church? What's the, what the, what's the point? What's the, the goal? What are we striving towards? He says this, And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How do we miss this? We can forget this text to excuse the way that we just treat people or twist it a little bit. Um, so I have a sabbatical coming up, and I think for part of that, I'm just going to get off social media because <laughs> it just plunges into the depths of the human heart. And uh, this was a number of weeks ago. I was on Facebook, and friends post. Uh, yeah, there was just a really, really rough comment section. Uh, yeah, it was increasingly hostile. And so it had to do with people, uh, these people who were interacting on it, uh, who were in churches and have experienced great hurt. Um, yeah, just some really painful stuff. And I saw a guy uh, who, I, who I don't know, uh, who's a pastor somewhere, I guess, uh, in his interactions was calling people prideful and demonically influenced and then proceeded to ask them to follow Jesus in a Facebook comment. He then later apologized, not to those people, but to the, the person who posted, apologizing for not being diplomatically correct. Diplomatically correct. You mean loving? If we forget this passage, we will be cold, we will not consider others. 
in a situation like that, people who have just gone through terrible things, I don't even know what they've gone through, and by speaking like that, you just fan the flame. Yeah, the church does suck. Yeah, Christians do suck. That's what, it just fans that flame into their lives even more. Right, so he didn't say love because he would then have to submit his character to Christ. Or say, just, just give a different vocabulary and then it'll be okay. It'll be excusable. Like, no, it's not loving when we talk like that. We justify just speaking the truth, right? That's, that's the excuse. We don't have to do the hard work of considering other people and where they're at. Right? Like, when we're in a, a situation with someone, like, and we're trying to provide counsel, we just don't quote any part of Scripture. Right? Like, if someone's grieving, we say, hey, you know how, about how God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? Have nothing to do with each other. It's a true thing. Wrong context. And when we do that, church, it does great harm. Right? And, and another excuse that comes up a lot, it's like, well, Jesus said some hard things. He did. I'll give you that. But he also knew everything about them. And he knew exactly how to speak to them in ways that would set them free, in ways that would get to the heart. And in and of ourselves, we don't. We don't know everything about everyone. We don't know the perfect ways to speak into a situation. We need the Spirit's help. We need the love of Christ to build us up and to send us out. And if we forget this passage, we often can just see truth as a hammer to pound into people. Right? Just right off, like, hey, it's just my personality, just the way I am. And when we do that, we can let the Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, all that speak more about our identity than Christ. Oh, introverted, not a people person. Like, you're a disciple maker. That's who you are. You're a son, you're a daughter of God. People get wrecked by that. Uh, some of you parents uh, have had to deal with the, the replacing of batteries in a kid's toy. Do you use a hammer to get to the batteries? And depending on the toy, you may hate that toy. But no, it's, it's not what you do. You, if you do that, you're going to have some crying kids that have a broken toy of something that used to bring them joy. Right? Like, here you go. Go play with mutilated Elmo. Like, we would be terrible parents if we did that. Right? But to change the batteries, to get to the issue of why the toy's not functioning, you're going to need that tiny screwdriver to get to that microscopic Phillips screw that you can barely see with your eye. You can change the batteries. You can get to the issue. And you can restore joy. So, how does the love of Jesus change our approach? Mm. Well, going back to the hammer analogy, 
Sometimes a hammer is necessary in certain situations. I'm not prescribing when and where. Sometimes it is. But not to see truth just as a hammer, but rather a tool set that can be applied in different situations with different people. There's not a one-size-fits-all for discipleship or counseling or anything like that. We have to see the gospel as, as different tools that we can use, that the Spirit can use through us to help people, to make disciples. And so the love of Jesus informs us that the gospel is for specific people and is timely for every season, right? And so our posture is that of Christ, that of humility and compassion and grace and truth and love, right? And so when we talk about evangelism, now I'm not speaking against completely um, street preachers or looking at community, discipleship, eh, discipleship and all of that. We don't compromise on truth. We don't compromise on truth. Yet, at the same time, with the spirit and posture of Christ, we are to be winsome and loving. Because if the gospel set you free, you want to set other people free. You want to see that happen. And so to take on the posture of Christ. Again, uh, you know, taking on this, this posture, it, it does not leave room to be a jerk. And so Romans 2.4, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not his harshness or his bluntness. His kindness has led you to repentance ever since you first believed. Think about that. Like when you first believed in every day, every moment since then, when you've had to turn from your sin, it's been his kindness that has turned you. We are to imitate that kindness. We want to see people set free. Love and action, number two, forgiveness. So we're going to be in Matthew 18 and Matthew 5, overviewing this. Um, so this, is, this has to deal with forgiving people who have sinned against you and making things right with people who have something against you. It's the hard work of the church. It's Matthew 5, verses 23 through 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I can jump into this and we could have a full sermon just on this. But what I want to do is just bring up these passages, both in Ephesians and here as informative for where we are, and informative and maybe revealing of, of where our hearts have been, what, what our postures have been, and particularly understanding where we've missed this, where we've missed living this out. And there's two main ways we can miss this, whether relating, if we're relating to Matthew 5 or Matthew 18. And one can just be pride. We, we can justify our actions and our motives. It, maybe the ultimate goal is to be right. 
we don't see our own sin. Or it could be fear, right? On the other end, the one being offended, being afraid of the confrontation. I get that. And there, and I say this not to say every situation is light, um, that you should just get over yourself. This is tough, church. This is really tough. There's some tough situations that we have to walk through. But to understand actions and consequences, if we avoid, if we look over, if we don't deal with the sin, if we don't deal with mercy, the issue will continue to fester and it will get worse over time. So, not saying as this eerie warning, but, but it's something to consider how it affects you, but maybe beyond you, beyond your circle and into the community to seek forgiveness, to seek restoration, to seek reconciliation, right? How does the love of Jesus change our approach in forgiveness? If Jesus is appealing to you, forgiveness will be appealing. Because when you really see Jesus as he is, pursuing us, the broken, pursuing the sinners, pursuing the impure, the unholy, showing us love, dying for us, redeeming us, we can begin to do the same. Not to redeem other people, but to draw near to other people, to forgive those who have sinned against us. And if we have committed the sin, to confess our brokenness, to confess and own it, and to seek mercy. That's the posture that we are to have as the church. Paul writes later in Ephesians 4, chapter, or verse, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You have your example. We have our example. Christ has forgiven us. Therefore, we can attempt, by His grace, through the Spirit's empowerment, to do the same thing. It doesn't mean... It will be easy, but it is necessary if we want to thrive, if we want to flourish, church. Because if we don't, it will lead to dissension and division and disunity and strife, hurt, gossip. But our ultimate goal is not those things. That's not what we want to live in. That's not what we want to be as a church. Our ultimate goal is unity. It is to experience the fruit of the Spirit together. Right? What would that look like for us to experience love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control as a body? Living out together the love of Jesus. And so we must continually call one another to that. To call me, to call all of us together into that. And to remind ourselves and each other that Jesus alone is the way. And it's so much better than any alternative. And so for you to think about 
Maybe how you've wrestled with your own pride, with your fears, with your anger, with things like that. To think about that. Do you know that Jesus had them all in mind when he was on the cross? Every single one. Every moment. Pride. Every moment of lust. Every moment. Do you know that he paid for that? Do you know that he has given you new life so that old life would be put to death? Do you know that he will finish what he started in you? And so as we walk with him, church, we will become more like him. And it doesn't stop at age 20, 32, 45, 60, 89. It keeps going on this side of heaven. We're all works in progress, but with the same goal in mind, to achieve the unity of the faith, based and founded in the love of Christ. And so we're going to move into our time of response. So I want to invite up the band. And as we do that, I want, I want to just pose this to you. I want to pose this question to you. What kind of church do you want to be? What kind of church do you want to be? What do you want to be known for in this city? What do you want to be known for in future generations? For our kids who are in our kids right now, when they grow up. Or the stories that they tell their kids. What do you want to be known for? You want to be known as the gifts church, the purity church, the political church, or the church that loves and has joy like none other. A church that loves. The gifts are great, but it's nothing without love. We could have the whole world church. But if we don't have love, it's nothing. So I don't say this in a sorrowful way. I say this in a, as tangible as I can. For us to look ahead in Hebrews 12, Look to the author and perfecter of our faith and lay aside every weight and sin that clings and run the race. He who promised is faithful. He will finish what he started in you. In church, if we collectively submit it all to him, all of our gifts, all of our knowledge, everything that we have. I say, Lord, these are great gifts, but it's nothing compared to you. And if we don't have you, if we do not have love, we're not going to go forward. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 1.5. For us to echo as a church, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
So church, let's lay aside every weight and sin and run to Christ. Run to love. And so we're going to give you time to pray just through that, what that looks like for you. Maybe what that looks like for your group, what that looks like for your household, what that looks like for your neighbors. This will be the opportunity to give as well. We'll have a uh, slide up there on the screen for that, if this is your church, to give out of the ways that the Lord has been working in your heart under no obligation, but out of a heart of generosity. We're also going to take communion, and so we're going to have um, the servers up here with the, the bread and the cup. And the whole point of that is to remember love, to remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, remember his body, the bread, being broken for us, his blood, the cup, being shed for us so that we would be cleansed, that we would be redeemed, and we would come to a knowing of him and understand what real love is. So we come up, we take, we remember. And maybe Matthew 5 has, has rung something in your heart this morning. If you know some, someone here has something against you, go to them. Let's live this out today. Live out love today. And then we're going to sing. So I'm going to get out of the way and we're going to move forward. Jesus, thank you um, that you are love. You are the perfect. You are everything that we need. You supply everything that we lack. So Lord, would you come and fill this church? Would you lead us forward in the way of love? compelled by you, Jesus, to forsake everything else that, that is holding us back. The sin, the, the, the weights, the decisions that we've made that are just holding us back, Lord, would we submit it to you at the foot of the cross? Would you change us, Lord? Would you make us more like you in the ways that we love, in the ways that we serve? Draw near to us, Lord. We seek you, Spirit. Speak to us, console us, teach us, remind us of the words of grace. That Jesus, you are with us until the end of the age. You will not forsake us, but you will finish what you started. So we cling to those promises. We cling to you, Lord, and we're not letting go. No matter what. Thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.